Welcome. I'm Hala Abdel Noor, the presenter of Facilitate This, the Group Work Center podcast where we talk with facilitators about their craft with a focus on a different topic each episode. Facilitate This is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and goes out to listeners on the lands of First Nations people across Australia and beyond. Hi, Jim Buckle here. This week I'm swapping roles with our regular presenter, Hala Abdul-Noor. Facilitating groups in a therapeutic setting poses a unique set of challenges and rewards. This week I dive into the deep end of work on behaviour change with our presenter, Hala, who runs groups for male perpetrators of family violence. Something I rely on a lot in doing the work is the group facilitation skills that I've learned along the way. Just putting it into context, the groups we're talking about are men's behaviour change programs Mm. for cisgender heterosexual men who are using different forms of violence and abuse towards their partners, ex-partners and other family members. Which is a big space to be working in. It's huge. Name that. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. And what's unique about that space is it's probably one of very few spaces in society where the majority of the men attending the groups are mandated to. So men can volunteer to attend, they can choose to go. Voluntary participants include men whose lawyers said it's probably a good idea for you to do this. So it's, uh, you know, questionable volunteerism. So that actual motivation for being there may not always be working for you or for others in the group. It's just something to be aware of as you enter the space Mm. that as a group facilitator, this is the cohort you're working with. They're men, it's up to 14 in most groups. That's the minimum standard guidelines is that you don't have more than 14 men. I personally think eight is a fantastic number for what that space is and what we're talking about. And it's also men who use violence primarily towards women in that intimate relationship and familial environment. And as a woman facilitator, I'm the only woman in the room. So that's something quite unique to the females that do this work is that your co-facilitator is um, supposed to be a male Mm -hmm. so that there's both voices represented and so that in that co-gendered dynamic, you're role modelling respect and safety in the way you would like the men to adopt into their lives Mm -hmm. between men and women. So that's actually quite a considered thing. So as a female in the space, I'm the only woman in the room and I'm very much reliant on whether my colleague understands male privilege, male entitlement, how he might consciously or subconsciously apply his own entitlement in the space and the dynamics that play out between men Mm -hmm. and men and women. So the co-facilitator who's male is managing something about that dynamic, which is gendered, and so is the female facilitator. So that's kind of a broad context about the space we're talking about. And there's a lot going on in that space. The work that you do... How is it enhanced by your group skills? I might speak to the first group I ever co-delivered. It was in a correctional facility, a maximum security correctional facility, and there was no program manual at the time to follow. I had not seen a men's behaviour change program before. I probably got a couple of hours of debriefing around what it is. I had a colleague who didn't think it was his responsibility to teach me anything. 
he also had a lot of male privilege that was unchecked. For example, he wouldn't walk through a door if I was opening it. He wouldn't let me push the trolley around because what would the fellas think about him allowing a woman to do that? So they're exactly the kind of things we're trying to break down and he he hadn't really unpacked them for himself yet. So I didn't really have much guidance about what to facilitate, what the content is and what sort of the broader... Um, not the broader objective, I knew that, but the intricate details of of the purpose of each session. I was kind of making it up as I go. And it was actually a reasonably well-delivered group. And my reflection on that is it was my group facilitation skills that helped me get through. And it helped me to value the space or the status of group facilitation skills within that forum because Without content and without a manual and without a supportive co-facilitator, I got through and we delivered content and it was, um, it's hard to measure the effectiveness of men's behavior change programs and what, what are we measuring really? But the participants completed and some learning happened and there was reflection on use of violence. And for me, it was absolutely no doubt that it was my group facilitation skills that helped that process. So I'm thinking immediately making it a safe and welcoming space for people, very important in any group. I'm thinking validation. So whatever is said that comes from the heart and is expressed with goodwill needs to be validated, especially when it's a hard thing to say. Yeah? I'm thinking uh, noticing and naming things that are going on, either for individuals or the group. I'm thinking summarizing and clarifying to give direction to where people are headed. And I'm thinking following through, where are we going? What's our purpose with this group? And how are we, so checking in, how are we calibrating ourselves along that goal? And are we getting anywhere? Those are the sorts of things that you're using? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you're working with within this space, but particularly with corrections clients, whether they're in a facility or out in the community, there's added layers of trauma, of shame, of stigma, of their sense of disempowerment in society, whether it's by the system or other experiences that they have. So the validation of, for example, they're, they're often institutionalized. So there's a need to express that angst towards the system and the, you know, because it hasn't been a positive experience for them. So that validation of that experience at the beginning rather than just meeting it with resistance yourself but actually validating yes that is your experience let's just let that be in the room that this is something that's an adverse experience for you in life but let's not let that deflect from the conversation we're having here which is around your behaviors and how you've impacted people and how you've impacted yourself as well because look at where you've ended up and even if that might be in a correctional facility or with criminal charges, or it just might be not that drastic, but somebody who's lost their family or is that on the verge of losing their family. That's a lot, isn't it? Asking someone to take responsibility when they may be seeing themselves as forced into a victim role. They're being punished. They're required to be compliant and they're mandated to turn up to this group. So you're working against sometimes, I should imagine, a number of factors that may not bring people into that space feeling safe and welcome. Absolutely. And safety often 
when I've worked with other experts in the space and we've delivered training to practitioners who do the work, we've talked about safer space, not rather than safe space, because to some extent, safety can never be 100% achieved. And especially when you're talking about such complex topics, which often in a therapeutic session you are, whatever the group is, it's not always safe. Safety is not present 100% of the time. I think it's important to draw on facilitation skills because it's in those moments that safety is compromised. So there's creating the safety at the beginning and then there's watching out for when it's compromised so that you can bring it back to some extent, bring it back enough so that people can still have honest conversations, honest reflections, take responsibility for behaviours that often instigate a lot of shame. and sit with shame and trauma if that's present and it often is whilst looking at how they might learn safer ways of relating to others. So there's a lot to balance and for me um, I think the micro skills you mentioned earlier are very important, noticing, naming, acknowledging, validating in particular just things that you're constantly drawing on but standing by is a big one. When do you need to stand by? a client so that they march through the mud. It's often it's just sluggish and it's mud and it's not pleasant. Having that compassion and having that understanding. When we talk about standing by, that means standing by an individual saying or doing something that's really difficult for them to get through or to get out, but also standing by the whole group for whom that might cause triggers or impatience or whatever, yeah? Yeah. Um, Holding the space to allow the group to get through those sticky, Mm. hot moments. Just divert from micro skills to our inner dialogue because it would seem to me, and I'll be upfront with you, having attended therapeutic groups and observed the facilitators, I think I've noticed at times where they have been triggered and that they've defaulted to a punitive position subconsciously, not really realising what they've done. There can be, if we're not very careful in that space, can't there, a, a tendency to not check what's going on for us here. Are we triggered? Are we actually coming from a wise space? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think for, for me, what I've observed in myself, both when I was doing drug and alcohol therapeutic work in a prison system and in the men's behaviour change is the social pressures. So when I'm outside in the world and I meet people and they say to me, what do you do? Whether it was I was doing the AOD work, um, the drug and alcohol work in prison or now with the family violence stuff, most of the time the response is, do they change? Are you fixing them? Because people are so scared of violence and they're so scared of um, that. For good reason. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But there's this social pressure on you as a facilitator that you do change, that you do fix people. And it's obviously we can't fix anyone. That's something that good point. to manage. And I'm not really sure what, what I would call that self that comes up, the sort of obligated, duty-ridden yeah. um, sort of personality that has the voices. I mean, I really actually have to be mindful not to let that guide the process. That in. is something you can only do from a wise space, yeah? It's a constant juggle. There's what the outside world is expecting without the outside world knowing anything about how unsupported facilitators often are, particularly in the men's behaviour change space. Mm. 
But there's also the fact that in a men's behaviour change program, opposite to any other therapeutic program, the client isn't just the man in front of you. So there's different views. Some facilitators say, the man's not my client at all, his family is, even though they're not in the room. Others will say, he's my client. And for me, I actually think it's both because you're working with him, but if you forget everybody who's impacted by his behaviour, you can enter into a space of colluding um, with wow. with the choices he takes to use violence. That's a lot to balance all at once. Yeah, and if you're too focused on family members and what society expects of you, you can go into that coercive yes. space of he's not getting it, I have to ram it down his throat. It's literally a juggling act. And it's almost like you're threading a needle to get into that space where you and the client group both inside and outside the room need to be for productive change to happen. Absolutely. And it's just not always possible. No. And I think, you know, facilitators are humans. And when we look at the statistics around family violence, one in four women has experienced some form of violence since age 15. That's a lot of women in the world and that's who's reported and we know it's underreported. So it's probably more than that. And I'm speaking only for the female facilitators at the moment. Obviously, the male facilitator will have their own triggers, but that's a lot of female facilitators doing the work that might get triggered from their own personal experiences Mm. in the space or even just be triggered because the world is misogynist even if you haven't experienced violence yourself. I found as I started doing this work, my awareness of the patriarchy and how it impacts me as a woman in the world was really heightened. It kept growing and it was just too confronting. There was a period of time where it was just so confronting to just notice all the all the ways that women can be disempowered in society. And so then you you have that realisation and walk into uh, a men's behaviour change program and the guys that just love throwing misogynistic things around just to, their target is always the female facilitator. They never... Let's talk about that for a bit because I've worked with a group training facilitators whose job it was as social workers and therapists to work with perpetrators of sexual violence. And these were people who worked within the correctional system. And they talked about collusion to gang up against the facilitator and how real this was. Tell us a little bit about the pressure for you as a facilitator in that role. Yeah, it's definitely frequently spoken about in the sector that it's the female facilitator that is going to be the target of attacks and resistance and um, ganging up. And that's largely because the men will attempt to collude with the male facilitator. Oh, you're a guy. You get what it's like. Women are really difficult to manage. Women are too emotional. Women, And as the female doing the work, the only reason you could possibly be doing the work is you're a man-hating feminist. And that has literally been asked of me in every single group. Why do you do this work, Hala? Do you hate men? And well, my response is simple and very true. And I look at them and I say, I guarantee you that if I hated men, I couldn't do this work. And I actually, I don't say this to the men in the groups, but Women on the outside who work with victim survivors have also questioned me and said, how can you do this work? Mm. Why don't you work with victim survivors? How can you even just, how can you be in the room with perpetrators? Mm. And to them I say, actually as a woman I find it very empowering. I can take action around an issue that impacts me, even if I'm not directly experiencing violence at the moment from a man. I can do that on behalf of women and I can get into the room with men where I'm, as a facilitator, do have a a position of power Mm -hmm. and do have some authority so that I'm more safe, I'm safeguarded. And 
the work I do with my co-facilitator is so essential in terms of my safety not being compromised by his actions in that he does not collude and that he challenges misogyny when he hears it because yeah. then he's not called a man-hating feminist when he does. So I find that very empowering and I can watch change. I can actually be part of a therapeutic process for men who I genuinely believe want to be better partners, want to be better fathers, want to be better sons and brothers and they want to be better. They don't want to be the guy they never thought they'd end up being. So you've obviously seen that as an outcome. Are you able to talk about where people are able to go as a result of going through these sorts of programs that you've seen that's real? Look, it varies. The research and evidence on this is very scarce. There's one longitudinal study from the UK called Project Mirabal, which gives us the most amount of evidence, but really we need a lot more. And, mm. and currently we're in the process, but longitudinal studies take time. So we have to wait years for the outcomes and evaluations of programs are getting better, but nowhere near where they need to be. So I can't back much up with statistics. Mm. Project Mirabel found that about a third of the men who completed a men's behavior change made serious change. Mm -hmm. And a third of that third made ongoing, long-lasting long-term change where they literally stopped using violence in their relationships. And that's not because the programs are ineffective. It's because they function solo at the moment. And to address the use of violence in society, we need to address lots of lived experiences for yeah. people. I touched on this earlier in relation to are they disempowered by the system somewhere in their life? Do they have their own experiences of trauma that needs to be addressed? Do they have a mental health issue that's impacting or an acquired brain injury or, um, I don't know, personality disorders that yeah. are getting in the way? So none of these things are understood to drive the use of violence, but they are understood to increase the frequency and severity of the violence. And they require a case management model, which we're starting to fund a bit more. But again, that's not probably where it needs to be mm -hmm. to help an individual who's using violence maintain change they require a lot more support in their life beyond a therapeutic program that runs for 20 weeks. What about compassion and goodwill? When you were talking earlier, it occurred to me that, yes, it's empowering for both you and for them to see things from a different perspective and to be in that space for you as a woman be able to take some of your power by articulating how things can be improved quite easily by behaviour change and attitudinal change. Is love at the heart of that? Yeah, look, I prefer to use compassion just because it's less misunderstood. Even when I talk about compassion, when I deliver training to other facilitators in this space, I often talk about working with compassion and, and maintaining compassion for the men in the room. And I'm always met with like a few people in the room will say, are you, are you asking me to love them? Are you asking me to like them? Because I'm telling you I don't mm. and I can't and I mm. won't and I don't even agree with that. And, you know, it triggers a yeah, very emotive sure. response, which I understand. But sure. I also think it's problematic if you're a facilitator in the space and don't work to move beyond that because compassion isn't about approving somebody's negative choices, but it's understanding that they're not just those negative choices. They're not just someone who uses violence. 
they use violence in context and we're working on that and they're there in front of you actually being very vulnerable and raw trying to work on it. So if you don't show them compassion, you're not going to help them move beyond that. I fundamentally believe that people who use violence regularly, frequently, without much control over it, don't have much compassion for themselves. So unless we create a space where they can learn to have that, it's very hard for them to believe that they're a decent enough person to even make the changes they need to. So it's just offering that space and saying, I will maintain compassion for you, but you need to find compassion for yourself. It's been a great introduction to a complex space that many of us as facilitators are not often exposed to unless we're trained and working in that sector. For me, it's been fascinating to get an insight into that space and to back up my hunch from the work that I've done there, that our group skills are really applicable as just as much, if not more, than in any other group. 100%. Any theory on group work, role theory, which includes group facilitation skills, is fundamental to this work and isn't incorporated into the, or it's not integrated into the staff training yet as much as it needs to be. There we are. There's a space for us there, Hala. There is. Hala, if people are triggered at all by anything that we've talked about today, where can they go for help? This conversation can certainly bring up things for people listening in and we're containing something very complex and broad to a very small space. So there's never enough time to unpack everything. If you're out there listening and you're worried about your behavior, you think you might be, you're not sure if you're using violence or not, you want to have a look at it. The men's referral service is a good place to go. It's over the phone, online chatting. You can talk to a trained counsellor and they will refer you to a program in men's your area. Men's referral service and people could Google that and that will come up with contact details. Yeah. Yeah. And 1-800-RESPECT, which is national 24-7 phone counselling and that includes counselling and referrals both for people who might be using violence and people who might be experiencing it. Facilitate This is produced for the Group Work Centre by interviewer and showrunner Jim Buckle, audio engineer Lloyd Richards, consulting producer Justine McSweeney, supervising producer Mark Spencer, and myself, Hala Abdelnour. We welcome your feedback via email at podcast at groupwork.com.au. For details on our courses and services, visit our website, groupwork.com.au.